Well, good morning, Terranova. It's, uh, boy, it's so mixed to figure out what I'm feeling right now. I feel like, you know, sometimes counselors give you that little emotion chart of different pictures. I don't think the face is on there. It's just, it's so complex. There was part of me that actually wanted to be more sad than I am, but I realized it's not a sad story just because it's the last of this thing. God has brought together what he did from the beginning and is still moving in this. It's still, it's still his story, though it's, it's strange for me. I realize this is the last time that I will stand here as lead pastor, being able to preach the word of God like this. It was the last time as lead pastor I'll feel Diane's hand between my shoulder blades before I walk up, knowing that she's praying as she has done every time before I get up to preach. I'll feel that little hand just for a second of her saying, I'm praying for you. But this is such a bigger story than just one moment. Uh, it was 17 years ago that Diane and I began to pray, God, is this what you want us to do? Would it be to take who we are, what we have, and lay it down, pour it out as an offering to be able to see this church planted in Troy? We spent a lot of time praying, uh, talking to different people, getting wisdom from them. We determined, yeah, this was it. We invited a few families in who became a part of that. And if I had to look at those years, I, I would say is a story of God's faithfulness to Diane and I, to be able to do this and end in a way where we didn't bring shame and dishonor to the name of Christ, that we can look out at everyone and say, we've done our best to serve you and never misuse anybody or anything from this church. It's important to us. And we took that risk, and what happened is bigger than us because more people started hearing from God about becoming a part of this. You guys showed up. And that's when it became real, when it became a church, when, when it became ours, and, and had all the life that has been Terranova Church for so many of you. For most of the time, we learn how to love, how to be forgiven, how to experience forgiveness, how to fail, how to have humility, how to give aid within our family context. As broken and limited as it is, that's the first place we learn those things. But I can tell you, uh, for Diane and I, we also learned that here. Because this church became, and we see it as, family. Um, there have been times, and I don't know if you'll feel good or bad about this, but the people who are kind of like under our kids' age, so like 30 and under, uh, we have called like our Terra sons and Terra daughters at times. We're like, oh, do you see who our Terra daughter's dating? I'm going to have to talk to that guy. Things like this went on in our, in our little world. But we see you, I think, the way the Bible sees you, which is the right way to see just about anything, as family, because we are called that. We are called that not just as a term of nostalgic endearment, but because under one father, we have been made one, something the world desperately needs to know at this time. And we've been called a body together under Christ's headship, functioning to do the things that the church gets known for, the things that matter to our city and the temple more and more made holy if we're doing this right together I wish we weren't leaving during a pandemic because we have to do it on pandemic terms and I don't like doing things on anyone else's terms it's maybe tells you something about my own sin DNA but there it is it means we'll have to be sort of distant and uh, we've been struggling with cold and bronchial infection you still get sick with other things besides COVID-19 I think we forget that you know so we're, we're not going to be huggy which is really hard for Diane after the first service I had to like hip check her a few times as she started leaning towards people what happened to the agreement we made uh, 
but there are other ways we can express that, and I know that. Some people have actually written emails and a couple letters, and uh, they have meant a lot to me. Because I'll tell you a secret. I'm probably a lot more shy of a person than most people who only hear me preach realize. They think because I'm up here, I do this. This is preparation. I get to control the conversation. Nobody interrupts me. This is where introverts can look really extroverted at times, even if they're not. But the secret is what I remember most and have viewed as most valuable are the side conversations I've had with many of you. On the sidewalk, at men's retreats, at the soundboard, out in the lobby, those conversations have meant the world to me. It's where I have gotten to know many of you more and been able, I think, to pastor some of you better because we could have those conversations. And, and I will miss those terribly. If I could leave on my terms, it would probably look something like when it began. One, it would be summer. We would have grassy fields to be able to hang out in. Friends were musicians playing music for us and leading us in worship at the right moments. And then as things began to fade into dusk, I would take 10 or 15 minutes and try to explain how God's been working in our life. How Diane and I again went through a period of prayer and trying to figure out what we were doing. And what we believe can be done good for the kingdom of God in planting and overseeing churches being planted all over the country. There would also be cider and wine. I know some of you have different convictions about that, but there would be that there. But I know this isn't an and, and I know we're family, and I do hope without sentimentality we stay connected. I know Harbor Ministries is a ministry that I really want Terra Nova to still be connected to. To say it another way, I hope Terra Nova and Ed and Diane can still do ministry together. That's, that's what I really hope for. It's a new calling for us, but I want you to hear this, because I've heard so many people talk about, oh, we're happy for you and what you're doing, new calling. God has a calling for this church that's new. He wouldn't be moving me out unless he had plans for this church and what he was going to do after that. It's, it's just that way. He has things that he's calling you to that you don't know yet. And it's something that will be continuing to bring more glory to Jesus that much, I'm sure of. So the best I can do now to leave on my own terms is to preach from the word of God about Jesus. There's nothing else I would rather do on my last day here. So please find your way in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. While you're going there, <clears throat> do you believe people can change? Do you ever have that discussion? Sometimes the people there are those who are kind of cynical or maybe they'll call themselves realists and say, people don't change. And there are those who just maybe are so pie in the sky optimistic. Oh no, everyone I know is just getting better and better. And what, what's the real answer? Do, do people change? Let, let me throw out some categories that sometimes look like change, but maybe are a little different than the kind of change I'm talking about. Sometimes in this world, when we get hurt, when we get damaged, when there's trauma in our lives, we change. Some of it, we become less naive and we're careful around people, or maybe, maybe we're even like hesitant and reticent and more shelled in because of that damage that's there. That's a, that's a complicated change, but not the kind of change I'm talking about. Sometimes it's restraint, where we realize, I'm a bad person, and this thing I do, I don't like, so I will try my best to keep that on lockdown, right? I stopped playing pickup basketball games when I became a believer because I've always kind of felt basketball should be a semi-contact sport, and I realized that wasn't the most Christian thing that I had done, uh, so I got rid of that from my life just because I needed that not to be there so that I wouldn't bring shame to Jesus. 
But that's not the kind of change I'm talking about. Restraint just changes us like a dog is changed from wanting to run by being chained in the yard. It's just restraint. What I'm talking about, I would term transformational change. When not because of something that happened to you or not because of something you locked down, because of something totally other, you changed. We're heading into St. Patrick's Day, and I'll be doing the blessing at the bar at Brown's for the last time. And for those who haven't been, it's simply me going up and talking about St. Patrick for a little bit and having a chance to share the gospel and what happened in his life. And his is a life of radical transformation, coming from a wealthy family of privilege, never thinking about anyone else until he's kidnapped by the Irish and enslaved. And it's when he has nothing that he finally looks to Jesus and becomes such a changed person that when he's free, he will go back and preach the gospel to the very people who abused him nearly to the point of death and later in his life call himself Irish and say, we Irish. That's a radical change story. Today we're going to look at a text that's about a radical transformation and change. The roadmap will look like this. First, we'll talk about how Jesus leads. Fundamental and simple and important. If you are a disciple, it means you are being led. Disciple simply means follower. It means you are tracking and reorienting your life after Jesus. Jesus leads. Secondly, God speaks. His disciples hear but they don't always understand what God is saying. I think we'll find commonality with the disciples in this gospel text and our life in that. And lastly, Jesus intercedes. Were it not for that, any of his leading, any of the efforts for God to speak to us would be meaningless and fall on dead and sinful ears forever. I'm going to read now Matthew 17, 1 through 13. We'll pray together and then jump into the text. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When his disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we come to you as men and women desperate for change, tired to the point of exhaustion at times of the sinfulness within us, done playing the games 
that we tell ourselves we're something we are not, or grab causes that look like we can have control or influence over, but never really transformed by you. Father, you've given us your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, protecting and penning through the hands of men that we could hear from you. Lord, this day and this hour, we ask that you would open our hearts bare before you and reprint on them what you would have from your word, that we might see Jesus and be more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to take a look at the the first verse, verse 1, chapter 17, just for one minute. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There's a lot we don't know just from this short passage. We don't know what happened to those intervening six days. We don't know what was said, what was taught, what preparation was going on. We don't know. We don't know what mountain this was. There are biblical scholars who will argue, but nobody knows. It's not a surprise. We tend to go through our life as disciples of Christ with a whole lot of unknowns. We don't know what's going to happen next. We can't even figure out on our own why we did some of the things we did. There's a lot of unknowns to it. But here's what we do know. Jesus has called them by name to bring them to this place with him. He's in charge. He leads them and us. It's simple, but not simplistic. Good followers of Jesus accept his leadership and move after him. Not, Not just learn some Bible, not just live with some consequences of salvation, but continually seek to spend time with Jesus by following him. It shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus' last standing order for the church, the Great Commission, talks about observing this obedience. It says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. Some of your translations will say to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. It's the unmistakable mark of a disciple. They seek to observe what Jesus has commanded. His words, where he says, go and do this, disciples go and do those things. Where he says, this is prohibited, it's not for you people. Disciples stay away from those things. Observing what Jesus commanded you is not a limitation of your freedom. What I can promise you is this. It's the most freedom you'll have ever experienced in your life. If you decide, I will simply follow after what he says to the best of my ability. Secondly, as he leads these men up there, we have to acknowledge everything's not the same for everybody, is it? He calls up Peter, James, and John. Everything's not the same for everybody in our walk of discipleship. Really afraid right now because of politicians. I've been afraid because of politicians for years. But really afraid right now because they have landed on what is an unwinnable war, which makes people think we always need the politicians to continually talk about this, called the, the everyone ends up in the same place, equality of outcome. Well, it's never been that way. Did you grow up with siblings? Was there an equality of outcome in everything that you did? Did you all end up the same way? 
Is it that way at work? You go in and everyone's production is the same. Everyone's as smart as someone else. Look, it's just not that way. I go into our office. I can't be as enthusiastic as Tori Arneson. I just accept that. That's the way life is sometimes. Peter, James, and John are called up. Do you ever wonder what the other nine disciples are talking about in those moments? Peter, James, and John again. They got called in when, when Jairus' daughter got raised from the dead, and they'll be called in at the garden to Gethsemane. And poor Philip's going, never Philip, never. Hey, Phil, come up with me to the mountain. Phil, my life would be great if Jesus called. No, they, they accept that sometimes Jesus calls us to different individual paths, and the best thing we can do is not to have envy over the other path but for us to follow where Jesus has called us, to steward over every bit he has called you to as sacred. Because I have to ask you if you believe this truth or not. God knows exactly where you are. He never lost place of tracking you and leading you. He has your location dialed in, knows where you are, what you need, and how he will lead you. The question isn't to sort out your past, but where you are right now, how do you follow Jesus, you believe that he knows right where you are. These three will have a weight on them. They're the first ones called. They're the ones who do see someone raised from the dead. They're the ones in the garden to get somebody called to pray with Jesus. And now, before anyone else, they're going to see Jesus fully revealed in his glory. Hidden before and now transformed and on display. It's Jesus but not the Jesus they thought they knew. He no longer looks like Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi who was itinerant and wandering and talking to people. He's in glory. It's kind of like a superhero revelation, but not all superheroes, right? So Spider-Man, who is Spider-Man really? Well, he's Peter Parker. He takes off the, the costume and that's who he really is. But Jesus isn't like that. He's more like Superman. Because who's Superman really? Superman, he's not Clark Kent. That, that earthly image full of weakness and presence with people and doing their job and living, living, that's the disguise. Jesus is like that. He's taken on human flesh, looks like a carpenter, eats like a Palestinian carpenter, hangs out with these people in the midst of their suffering, but then they see who he really is, the full glory of the Son of God on display. And he's standing there between Moses and Elijah. So understand how unfathomable this must be in that moment to the disciples, to see Jesus in glory, and then to see the heroes of the faith who are dead to this world, standing glorified on either side of Jesus. And it's not just anybody. It's Moses, the guy who himself becomes a symbol of the first five books of the Bible. The law are often called the books of Moses. And Elijah, the one who symbolizes the prophets. When Jesus raises from the dead and is speaking to his disciples on Emmaus Road in Luke 24, who don't recognize him, he said, oh, why are you so slow to learn what Moses and the prophets wrote about me? Those are the two big divisions of the Bible. Jesus himself said that, all of the scriptures would be fulfilled in him. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law, Moses, or the prophets, Elijah. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now they stand on either side of Jesus, testifying that he's the centerpiece of the scriptures. When Peter is old, in his last letter, he will reflect on this moment. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He'll then say, but, but we have something more sure than even that moment of glory. We have the scriptures. You see, one of the things that honestly has frustrated me the most as a pastor, and maybe the most sad at times, is when people will come and say, Pastor, I, I don't really hear from God anymore. I used to hear from God, and, and now I don't hear from God. And many times they mean those times that some of us get maybe twice, maybe a dozen, maybe a half dozen times in our lives, where God speaks to us in a different way. We find it hard to describe whether it was a voice, whether it was a palpable feeling with us, but we knew we were in the presence of God. And what I want to say is, are you not reading your Bible? Because that's the more sure source, more sure than Peter will say, even of that majestic moment that I saw transformed. Because Peter, I think, would acknowledge, I saw it as Peter. I saw it with my own subjective inferences. I saw it from my keyhole vision of being one person. I saw it when I was young, and now I'm old. Maybe I don't remember it rightly anymore. If you want to hear from God, read your Bible. God speaks. He speaks to these people, but first. First, Peter speaks when he probably should have been silent. So when I was young, uh, my first dog, you know how everyone has like their boyhood dog, was Chief. Chief was a Malamute. Uh, his mother was larger than the male that she bred with. She was up around 90-plus pounds. She was an enormous Malamute. Chief was over 85 pounds, just a huge dog, and we got him as a puppy. And, and he had paws like snowshoes relative to his puppy body. When he was a full-grown Malamute, he could walk on that crusty, crunchy snow and not break it. That's like how spread out he was designed to have the weight of his feet. But as a puppy, he had a lot of trouble. He was a little guy with like these huge feet and he would like step on himself and fall in the snow and he was just, he was just a goofball. That's Peter. He's built to be something that he will be, a leader. He's the kind of person who will stand up and say something rather than be silent. He just doesn't know what to say yet or when to be silent. He's just goofy Peter fumbling awkwardly over the giftedness that he has. Isn't it great and freeing though that God knows we need to grow in these things? He doesn't yell at Peter for saying, you really should have been quiet, and he probably should have been, because if we look at the same account in Mark's gospel, which sometimes gets called the gospel of Peter, because Mark was a disciple of Peter, probably told Mark, who wasn't there for everything, the things that happened, the story gives a little more insight into how Peter was at that moment, what he was thinking. It says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, good that we're here, let us make tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. For he did not know what to say. Hmm. So here's the advice for Peter, right? If you don't know what to say, say nothing. My old father used to say many times to us when we were children, better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. This would have been one for Peter to have heard at that moment. He's way off base. He wants to build three equal places as, as though there's an equality going on among the beloved son, Moses the leader, and the prophet Elijah. And the Bible says he's still talking when the voice comes from heaven. God just steps on Peter's lines, doesn't rebuke him, but is willing just to work around even the messiness of disciples who don't always know what we're doing. 
and heaven speaks. Now, we could argue the small pieces of theology. You can argue how you baptize. We could argue what the end time schemes are or, or how we view the process of salvation step by step. But this is what heaven has to say. This is my beloved son in whom I am fully, deeply well pleased. Listen to him. You see, there's no arguing over that piece. When you get disoriented, go back to Jesus is the perfect one in whom God is fully pleased and we should be listening to him. This, my beloved son. Same said at baptism. When John the Baptist, Elijah to come, was drawing people to a baptism of repentance, preparing them to receive the Messiah so that all who were repentant would know this is the one sent for the world. And now to his disciples who will travel the earth speaking this gospel so that the world will know this is the Son of God in whom God was well pleased. Listen to him so that followers would know his glory. But that glory came to these men with a terrifying reality in which Jesus had to intercede for them. You see, they see the first part of the gospel that's necessary for all of us plainly. They see God as he is, and his holiness is terrifying to us. Because I think we're we're used to seeing God, even we as believers, how we want to see him. That, that we make him a, a little less holy and a little more tolerant of us. Or, or, or we, we make him like a funhouse mirror where one piece of him is exaggerated. Oh, he's so loving, but he's not very justice-oriented. Or he's so justice-oriented, he could never love me. And we have these funhouse illusions of idolatrous gods that we worship. Now they see God as he is. No filter, no distance. And they fall down on their faces, terrified. It's the same way that John, when he sees the risen Lord in glory in Revelation, will fall down as dead. It's a lot. And they're right to be terrified. The holiness of God cannot exist with the sinfulness of mankind. That sinfulness will be put away forever in a place where there is only sinfulness, darkness, and no light, a place we call hell. Or that sinfulness will be utterly consumed by the holiness of God. They're right to recognize the terror as God shows up. What do we do when God is distant and yet his presence shows up and would destroy us? How do we reach out to him? Do you remember in the book of Job? Job's the righteous man who wonders, why am I suffering? I'm doing everything right. Why do I suffer now? I wish there was someone, he'll say, who could put a hand on me and a hand on God so that I could make sense of all this, just this once, be able to talk with God and understand. That's exactly what Jesus does. Verse 7, it says, Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It's in the lowest experiences of our mortal existence when we have nothing and nobody to look to anymore, when we can only see Jesus that we most powerfully find him. When when we're done trying to hold the things that we thought would give us meaning and soothe us and save us, when junkyards consume those, 
When we're done believing some other person, some other person like me can somehow fix my life and, and give me fully satisfaction and hope when graveyards have claimed the last of them. In those moments when we don't even hold the idols we once clung to, we have a chance to see only Jesus. They no longer saw Roman rule and the oppressors who were over them. They no longer saw little changes in their lives feeling good. Like, hey, I'm not a fisherman. I'm following Jesus now. That's pretty cool, right? They no longer see personal gain like Matthew once wanted, just collecting all the money. They no longer worried about their small businesses or their historic vendettas or whatever else blinded them or blinds us to seeing only Jesus as central and significant and all-encompassing of our lives. I think it's that moment when they're really saved. Kind of simply believe there are two things that we have to see to be really saved. We have to see God as He really is, holy and perfect, and ourselves as really they are, sinful and unable to reach that perfection. It's then that we can find the one who puts a hand between us and gives Himself to close that gap. And it's then Jesus says to them two things rise and have no fear. I can tell you I fought fear to plant this church. The story goes something like this. I had just announced to the first church I planted, King's Chapel, down in Glenmont, New York, that I would be leaving to take on a job with church planting for a region of the Northeast with a particular denomination, and I was at the men's retreat as a lame duck pastor. And it's weird when you're the lame duck pastor. People aren't talking to you. They're talking about what they're going to do in the new organization and who's going to get the office. And you're like not even there. So I'm just checked out, sort of listening by myself. And it's one of the co-founders of the Promise Keepers Men's Movement. And he's talking, and honestly, I'm thinking about the next job and leaving and the mix of sadness and excitement that's there. And I hear him say, blah, 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 fear. And when I heard fear, I didn't hear the sentences. It was total Charlie Browned it. It was like a cattle prod hit me in the stomach. I felt like this electric surge, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I am going to start crying, and this may violate Marcel's man's rules of crying, which, by the way, it's it's God, death, family, war, and certain badger losses. Not all of them. There's a couple Rose Bowls you got to cry for. So I decided I'm not going to do this in front of everyone. I ran out in the hallway, and I sat down and was just sobbing. And I said, God, I have no idea what's going on. What? Why am I crying? Because I heard a man say the word fear. And I heard a voice within me say, you can't have fear to accomplish what I have for you next. Planting a church in downtown Troy with next to nobody at the start, in a nightclub, being willing to sit down with Metroland, the alt magazine, and talk to them about this, All these things, multiple pastors told me, you should do none of this. You shouldn't be meeting where there's a bar. You shouldn't be talking to our enemies in the culture war. I I had to focus on Jesus only, or I was not going to get done what God had for me. Can I tell you, I believe that for you as well. That if you become afraid of everyone else and what they think about you, getting their approval or getting their condemnation, You're not going to see Jesus only, be following Jesus only, and end up where the Lord wants you. They arise, and they follow, and they're walking down the hill now, and they start to have this discussion about Elijah and the end times. And the discussion comes down to this. Essentially, now's the time. Messiah is being revealed. 
Because Jesus points out to them that, the, the, that Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist, speaking of repentance and drawing people to be ready for Jesus, preparing the place for him. And he says, look, he suffered, and I'm going to suffer. We already know the disciples are like this. They don't like the suffering parts. They're like us. They, they want the parts of the glory, but not so much the suffering pieces. But Jesus says, this is going to happen. Before you see me like this in glory again, I will suffer at their hands. And to be a follower of Jesus means we suffer. You will be confused and disappointed because you're following the wrong God. If you're thinking, everything should go swell and perfect for me because I'm following Jesus the best I possibly can. Suffering's part of the equation. When, when Peter is old and pastoring the church through his two epistles, it's thematic in his writing that suffering precedes glory. He got that straight from Jesus, and he's just telling us what should be obvious. As followers of Christ, suffering precedes glory. But the start of following, of glory, is now. It's not always what we want, but we're the broken ones who ultimately have to say, because I can't, I actually have to cry out in complete submission to God and say, Lord, I'm too broken to do the things you've asked me. Because we can't do it alone, we have to be the people who cling to Jesus and live close with the people of God so that we can possibly do what he's called us to. And it's in our despair that we will live with if we only count ourselves and those like us as those who can lead and change us. We will be without hope. But when we have no hope in ourselves, we are people who are free to find that we can risk hope and faith in Jesus Christ. This I leave you. Christ is with you. He has been more with you than you've imagined. In the times when you and I have found a world wanting and ourselves hurting, we probably have at moments wondered, Jesus, where are you? And he's still the one with the hand on our back saying, rise, have no fear, and follow after me. We will all be like that at some point, the glory that we see in Jesus. St. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As one of the early church fathers, Bob Dylan, said, I see my light come shining from the west down to the east. Any day now I shall be released. The change will be for all of us. There will be no more hurting, trying to find idols that never satisfy, that collapse under the weight of our souls every time we tried to buy into them. There will no more be the pain and suffering of this world that has made so much in our image we couldn't possibly live here and please God. There will be in that moment only the transformation of the men and women and children who've come to know him. And that change will only be because of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you that you do call us. We might not have been called to the mountain, but we were called to hear every word of it. 
We might not have been called to the Garden of Gethsemane, but Lord Jesus, you shared exactly what you were doing, that you were sacrificing yourself, submitting to the will of the Father, that we could find the way of salvation. Father, thank you for calling us by name each time you call us to follow you. Lord, it's my prayer that you would help Diane and I in a new phase to follow after you, to navigate each turn in your directions. And Father, it's my prayer for this church that they would recognize the call you've always had on them and that you would even make stronger men and women who would follow after Jesus without fear to find the new paths and what you have called Terra Nova to in the future and how your plans are always met by your provisions. And Father, I pray for all of us that you would clear away the idols and toys that so easily distract us And help us once again to look and see Jesus only. In whose name we now pray. Amen.